This is Inform Your Resistance with PRA, Political Research Associates. Tune in twice a month to hear experts, researchers, journalists, academics, and movement strategists explain some of the most significant contemporary threats to democracy from the mainstream and far right. Together, we break down the so what of these movements so that you can inform your resistance in the fight for a just and inclusive democratic society. Political Research Associates has been producing rigorous, long-form analysis on the intersections of right-wing strategy for over 40 years. With Inform Your Resistance, we distill what you need to know most. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Koki Mendes, Communications Director here at PRA. Today, I'm joined by Alex Amend to map and understand the threat of far-right environmentalism, its intersections with the U.S. far-right more broadly, and the interactivity between an eco-fascist right and a climate-denialist Republican Party. We examine the ways that the rhetoric of climate crisis is deployed, or not, as a means of furthering nativist and reactionary politics, and we tackle the question of how to mitigate the influence of these violent ideologies. Alex Amend is a freelance writer and researcher focusing on the far right and the politics of climate change. His day job is at Rewiring America, a climate organization dedicated to promoting electrification of homes, businesses, and communities. Previously, he was the Intelligence Project Research Director at the Southern Poverty Law Center, responsible for tracking and disrupting hate groups. At the SPLC, he led major investigations into the alt-right and created the first comprehensive inventory of Confederate monuments. Alex lives and works in New Mexico with his wife and two daughters and serves as a volunteer firefighter and emergency medical responder. Alex, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to go ahead and get us started on this conversation by highlighting a recent and profound shift on the U.S. right to accept at least some of the evidence of climate change as evidenced by the audience and pundits outright rejection of early attempts at continued climate denial in the season's first Republican primary debate. Before we turn our attention further right, is there a general consensus on the contemporary right that climate change is happening that climate destruction is happening? And if so, what are some of the reasons you think this shift is and has occurred? Yeah, so the ground is definitely shifting. Um, I think what we saw with the, uh, you know, at the very top of the Republican Party, though, at the GOP presidential primary debate, um, you know, it's still an article of faith at the very tip tops that deny, you know, that humans have any impact on the climate. Um, I think they, you know, raised their hands who believes in this and nobody did and got a bunch of cheers. And obviously, you know, the oil and gas industry still very much uh, pays the bills, donates enormous amounts of money to the Republican Party. Um, and so it's there's still a lot of yeah resistance to even allowing that, that climate change is, is happening as a problem. However, there, there are two dynamics, I think, uh, very important here uh, that is enabling the shift, obviously, the worsening unavoidable impacts of climate, 
Um, and then I think more crucially, really, is the Democratic Party's policy response. Um, of course, when you have a reactionary party, they need something to react against. And the Democratic Party is, you know, more and more clearly, um, you know, advocating for climate solutions. Um, and we saw that, obviously, with the Inflation Reduction Act, the passage of, of that bill. Um, the Republican Party has, you know, attempted several times already to kind of repeal that either in, in the House and in, in the debt ceiling debacle um, and very much, you know, similar uh, kind of dynamics to what the GOP did under the Obama administration with that, with the, the Obamacare signature law. Like, there's the big target. We're going to go after it. Um, and but within that, too, there's, you know, the IRA put a lot of money, um, a lot of tax credits out there for business investment and states like Georgia, run by Republican governor Brian Kemp um, and other a lot of them in the southeast are seeing enormous amounts of investment coming into their states jobs um, for uh, clean energy technology. So there's, a, you know, if, if Brian Kemp is maybe not going to, uh, you know, join Greta Thunberg on, you know, a picket line or something, he is very much out there saying, hey, clean energy tech businesses, we're, we're open for business, come here. Um, and then, you know, the other really big dynamic, of course, is that the Republican Party is in flux, you know, the Trump populist turn, so-called. Um you know, is is real. And we're seeing that play out uh, with some of his imitators up on that stage. Um, and, you know, the vast kind of populist media apparatus that that surrounds the, the, the Trump myth and idea. Um, and within that, you know, there's this kind of rejection of like, large scale corporate, um, you know, so called globalist right control. Um, and so that's, you know, the, the kind of battle within the Republican Party that's been going on since 2015-ish, right, is still very real. And you've got the kind of old school, corporatist, C-suite, you know, business Republicans, and then you've got the kind of hair on fire, so-called populists uh, who, you know, very much oppose that agenda. And it's, it's, it's yeah, still being obviously playing out uh, before our eyes. Thank you uh, for laying that out for us. And I think it's really interesting that you add sort of the business incentive around new energy and how clean energy technology and sort of the economic opportunity that it presents is sort of undeniable for uh, Republican leadership to to ignore, to, to, to block. Can you also talk a little bit about the role that Gen Z Republicans and... Um, and far right Gen Z formations play on pulling at sort of this bifurcated Republican party. So I'm thinking here about the America first movement and sort of the way in which we see a lot of influence of Gen Z, um, internet personalities on, mm -hmm. uh, sort of mainstream, uh, Republican, uh, political figures and sort of the tension also between Gen Z as the, the generation that climate change has become sort of a defining characteristic of. And so how does, how do we see Gen Z Republicans in this milieu of generational shift and preoccupation with climate and how does that interact with sort of uh, 
what we see on the Republican primary stage, for instance? Certainly. It's a great question. And yeah, very much a live issue. Um, the Gen Z kind of the, yeah, the political, um, uh, act activists of Gen Z, right? I mean, they're very much, they've, they've come of age in this Trumpist transformation in the wake of everything that the alt-right, you know, created online with the, you know, fast, uh, you know, references and, and memes and, um, resurrection of, you know, fascist thinkers and the embrace of, old ideas. Um, and yeah, certainly that if they're being honest with themselves and are, are, are taking climate science seriously, uh, realize that this is, this is a, a worsening problem. Um, and I think we've seen probably more in the European context where younger conservative and far right activists are pushing the, you know, older generations who control the establishment, uh, parties to talk about climate in a way that's, solutions oriented, arguably. Um, and, but, but here in the States, you know, it's, I think it's become certainly something they talk about a lot. Uh, and, but, but probably still not like a priority, ultimate priority for them. I think it's still, um, uh, gonna be, you know, really just like bathing in the glow of, of Trump, um, and, and attacking, right. The establishment, they're very much on the attack. That's what they, they just want to see the destruction, however it can happen of the, you know, the Republican establishment so that they can remake it, you know, in a much more, uh, yeah, far right, um, uh, template. So I think, um, but that said, I mean, they talk about this and this it's, it's, it, it's, it's in the vein of the, 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 the populist kind of uh, uh, viewpoint that, um, you know, a reaction to the idea of this globalist control and, the, and, and large scale policy making of the kind which arguably, right, we need in order to stave off the worst uh, effects of the climate crisis. We need, you know, international uh, collaboration to stop burning fossil fuels um, and, and other mitigation efforts. Um, that, of course, is anathema to uh, Gen Z, you know, far right uh, cohort. And in fact, that's what they see like as core, uh, core enemy is the, is the globalist kind of control, right? And that as you go farther right, right, you get into the kind of much more conspiratorial, um, anti-Semitic, great replacement type stuff that kind of coalesces, right. In this vision of rebelling, you know, rebelling against this, this, uh, uh, globalist control. So I think that's, you know, foremost, they're really, you know, they want to take down the party. Um, that's what they've really succeeded in. You know, you mentioned, um, uh, America first, right? Like they went to war, and the Groyper War, so-called, you know, against um, Charlie Kirk and his operation and basically won, <laughs> got like Charlie Kirk, who was at one point a different type of conservative to be much more white nationalist um, and, you know, continue to kind of make gains through various uh, strategies and obviously a lot of media pounding and hounding. Um, but, but yeah, I think they, you know, they talk about it too, in this idea, not only just against the globalist control and the large scale solutions to climate change. I mean, they largely, right, think that, um, you know, clean energy technology is 
bogus. Um, they're <laughs> more interested in the kind of romantic ideal of, uh, you know, what what America, rural frontier, you know, vision of of American greatness really is. Um, and so you see a lot of kind of so-called eco-nationalist ideas um, all through this. Um, some of it, you know, goes to uh, like Teddy Roosevelt, right? The legacy of Teddy Roosevelt and like real strong kind of masculine. This, this fits in with like the whole bodybuilding thing as well. Like treat yourself well, be out in the open, climb mountains um, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, reclaim basically, you know, the, the peaks and valleys that make America great. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a lot <laughs> flying around. And then, you know, speaking of, of bodybuilding, right, the, the Bronze Age pervert, who is a major influence on this uh, generational cohort, right, like in his text, like was is pretty explicitly eco-fascist, um, talking, you know, making the, the, the precise metaphor that like the health of the environment is equal to and related to the health of the white race. Um, and then, you know, there's just been like several <laughs> profiles of this guy about his influence on, especially, like you said, younger generational uh, Republican and far right activists um, in Washington, D.C. even, right? So uh, it's, yeah, it's again, very live issue, very real um, and uh, a challenge. Thank you. That's really helpful clarification. I think, you know, what I'm hearing is that sort of the nativist agenda outweighs the generation's political preoccupation with climate change um, and what it is sort of the quote unquote globalist responses to addressing climate change um, only presents one, uh, you know, an alternative uh, non-state approach, um, which, you know, we'll, we'll get into a little bit um, what those what that approach is when we're thinking about eco-fascist sort of policy proposal, if you can call it that worldview, um, uh, state design. But sort of from what I'm hearing from you is that the general trend in Gen Z to define their politics based on, the reality of climate change is incompatible with sort of America first nativist, um, young Republican um, sort of attempts to, to remake the Republican Party in its image. I think it's just, yeah, it's just probably not a uh, articulated priority at the moment. I mean, I think, yeah, the nativist uh, uh, goals, you know, all, all flowing to up and from Trump. Um, that's that's key, right? Like behind the most, um, you know, buttoned up, suited up. Uh, far right, you know, activists in the Beltway, you know, they're 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 they believe in you know the Great Replacement. Like that's that is the motivating energy uh, behind all of these movements around the Western world, right? Is that this idea of replacement? Um, and so you know that that can fit. And I've you know written at PRA right about how it's kind of combined with environmental concerns and that's certainly something very active on the very far, you know, terroristic uh, part of the spectrum. Um, but, you know, for, I think, more of the, you know, party apparatchiks and the people trying to remake the, the Republican Party, it's, it's you know, it's 
constant, <laughs> uh, you know, like like any um, you know election with an incumbent and a challenger, right? Like you're, they're they're trying to take down the status quo. They're trying to take down the establishment. That is the foremost goal. Uh, great, thank you. Um, so we started talking about this, and I want to get into it more. Sort of, what is ecofascism? What does sort of uh, eco-nationalism and its furthest right iteration uh, mean look like? Sort of, what is the underlying ideology? And then, you know, taking this question in two parts, the relationship that we've been pointing to between sort of eco-fascist politics and anti-immigration um, and how do those two things interact? This is a big one. So take some time here. Sure. So, I mean, I think it's best to reserve the term eco-fascism, which everybody has, you know, issues with and problems with, um, as really reserved for the far right, like extreme far right, like lone wolf, so-called terrorists, right? The ones who actually say that they are eco-fascists and here's you know just a real quick point about i think the whole spectrum of the far right and the environment is unfortunately like i even you know, at the splc uh you know did amazing work on on this issue you know 10 years ago or whatever but still kind of like put it in the frame of like this is just kind of like entryism right like this is a treat thrown out to like try and capture more recruits into you know fascist cadres or whatever um and fundamentally like assuming that this stuff is just for show um i don't think that's the case i think that that, that you know for whatever it's worth uh we should take these people pretty seriously and their beliefs pretty seriously and so on the extreme far right and with the terrorists, like the, the the killer in New Zealand and in El Paso, um, and you know, wouldn't be surprised if ever the manifesto of the most recent uh, killings, you know, came out that there might be something along these lines, since they just all constantly, you know, plagiarize each other and and, and repeat the same things. Um, their vision, the eco-fascist vision, right, is is it's inextricable between the health of the white race and the health of the environment. And the threats to those are, you know, people of color uh, coming from other parts of the country here in the United States, you know, context, the American context, um, and, you know, trashing basically the, the environment and taking what is rightfully theirs. Um, and so at, at the very far, far right, um, that is the vision is there's like, there's an overlap. There's, you know, no distinction between the health of the race and the health of the environment. And then you kind of, you know, as you travel back towards the center, I guess, um, you know, certain explicit, you know, uh, references to the white race are going to start to fall away, but there's still this idea that there is, uh, yeah, a, 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 um, a homeland that is under attack um, and that the environment largely is being trashed, like quite literally, it's about, <laughs> it's not about climate, it's not about carbon pollution, it's about other pollution, it's about, um, again, kind of fitting into the anti-globalist, like, uh, uh, you know, corporate, um, uh, you know, modern, um, what should I say here, you know, industrial society, <laughs> Uh, to quote um, Uncle Ted, and we'll talk about later. Um, you know, there's there. It's it's under threat. Their their heritage is under threat, 
um, and there there needs to be policies and efforts to to yeah fight it, turn it back, and that really then slots into your second part of your question, right? Like, where is the threat coming from? It's coming from over the borders, and so therefore, to protect the environment and protect their political power, to collect collect their uh, protect their um, you know uh, values and their their vision of themselves, uh, we need to put up walls. We need to absolutely go into like bunker mode and prevent any uh, immigrants from coming in uh, the United States. And that, of course, ties back all the way to the beginning of the American conservation movement. And I encourage your listeners um, to read uh, Dorsita Taylor's work on this that, you know, tells the whole story. But that was kind of key to the beginning of the American conservation movement was this concept of preserving, right, like the the old America, which was white patrician uh, and then also, you know, unpopulated, except for, of course, you know, native populations that were being exterminated. Um, so um, that that vision is, is still live. And, and I referenced Teddy Roosevelt earlier. There was a divide during the days of you know, the heyday of the alt-right, right, between like racial and white nationalists versus so-called civic nationalists, right? And that was a very permeable uh, membrane there uh, between those two. Um, but there were people very adamant on the so-called civic nationalist side that they had nothing to do with uh, the, the, the white nationalist side. Um, but the Teddy Roosevelt kind of eco-nationalist, that's the, that's the vision there, is it's more about like, all of these, you know, our, the, the heritage that we are, we stand to inherit, inherit um, is, is under threat. Um, and it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's decoupled from this idea of like the white race, but it is, it's, it's, it's somewhere, you know, in several, uh, stages in the background, but it's, it's that, you know, we need to protect and conserve the treasures of, you know, the United States of America for the benefit of, uh, you know, future generations, but those future generations are already here and already defined. Um, and, and, and so therefore, like in order to do that, right, we need to, again, turn to nativism, protect the country from, uh, uh, immigration and, um, yeah, and, and, and keep it, keep it the way it is currently. Um, if not also roll back all sorts of things, with civil rights and, uh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Different policies like that. Thank you for tying that those two sort of what are often treated as distinct movements together um, so neatly. And sort of what I'm hearing from you, too, is that sort of this rhetoric that far right environmentalism, you know, was treated, you know, a decade ago as an entry point into far right politics. You're seeing it as being very core to the belief of folks um, in this sector and that so to me that that really highlights the danger right it, when we think about um climate activists throwing soup at priceless paintings sort of the yeah. the passion um and the willingness to act that we see already from from climate activists in sort of centrist and and left spaces i mean if the answer for the far right in the same vein is is sort of exterminationist, closed borders, uh, you know, what does that signal about if there's this willingness to act? 
so you touch on this with sort of mass shooters, which you covered really well in your piece for PRA and blood and, and vanishing topsoil, sort of the the logical conclusion to this rhetoric, to this belief and this willingness to act. Uh, is that, you know, sort of is that sincerity what you're seeing? Is that sort of the the foremost visible danger in this movement? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the mass shooter uh, stuff, I mean, it's just it, it keeps happening almost like clockwork. I mean, I think I, I, I haven't, you know, done the math necessarily, but I think it is somewhat slowing down. But it's I mean, it just, you know, happened again last week. Um, and and that, you know, these are these are individuals who are uh, deep, you know, in echo chambers online on Telegram, namely, arguably, I mean, we don't know for sure what these most recent ones, but, um, you know, and they're they're referencing each other, right? These are they, they write things on their weapons that are referenced to previous killers. They're anointed as saints and there's all this art and memes created about it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that there's something, you know, something happened, right? Like Dylan Roof did not write about the environment, like Wade Michael Page, the, the, the uh, neo-Nazi who um, murdered Sikhs uh, in, in Wisconsin, right? Didn't write about the environment. Um, there's something, something's shifted there. Um, and it, it coincides with, you know, these bigger phenomena with, you know, the, the, the um, contestation over right-wing politics um, more broadly. So um, that's, yeah, the most imminent <laughs> serious threat, of course, is just that with, again, how easy it is to get a gun in the United States, these types of attacks continuing, uh, maybe, you know, they seem to be not all that sophisticated. They don't need to be, right, to have uh, massive damage um, and, and be very deadly. Um, but but they, they, you know, I, I think they're, they're here to stay as they've been since, you know, uh, really since, uh, Anders Breivik. Um, so, but then, yeah, when you're thinking about the broader movement and you're thinking about policies, uh, that, you know, a nativist, uh, far right populist government might pursue, it's, that's going to be on the top of the list is, is closing borders. Um, it's what, you know, the Trump administration obviously, uh, and, and its campaign was focused on. Um, so I think that's, that's here to stay. Um, and, uh, yes, it can be, it, it just depends like on what kind of notes they want to play at any given time, they can bring in the environmental aspect of it. And that's, that's, that's key to, yeah, the anti-immigrant immigration, uh, movement in the United States, all the Tanton organizations, right. And then even, you know, relatively more recently, the, I think the former, yeah, the former AG, right. In, in Arizona, um, you know, doing all this stuff to basically say we're, we're, we're closing the border in order to protect the environment, like estimates of like what kind of garbage is like carried over, right. And pictures of it, um, put on, on, on even like Fox news. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, the, the, the core and really, and in my piece, right. Like, the animating force of the far right right now um, and their effort to overtake it, like in the context of, Ameri uh, of the United States, the Republican Party and remake it right, um, is this concept of, of replacement, of, of the great replacement, the, the conspiratorial idea that this is happening uh, to them and a response is, is required. And so it can be articulated as, yeah, uh, border policy, and it can be articulated as uh, uh, mass killings. 
Um, not to say that it's the exact same thing, obviously, um, but that it's on a spectrum um, and, and clearly here to stay. Um, and that sort of border policy just points to the incoherence um, of this world, given very recent uh, domestic industrial accidents uh, like train uh, train overturnings, which has done um, immeasurable damage to the environment uh, by American industry within the borders. Um, I want to touch a little bit on sort of you mentioned Uncle Ted uh, early on and come back to sort of the role that Ted Kaczynski has played in this movement, because I think it's an interesting um, look at the ways in which individuals on the far right sort of fuel um, new iterations of far right organizing. But before we do that, when we're thinking about sort of far right environmentalism and we're in a moment where we're seeing when there's a significant hurricane forecast for this week um, and active wildfires just north of the border, um, what unique opportunities do, do these examples of climate destruction and their impact and sort of the rhetoric of climate destruction present for far right organizing in these spaces? Well, to kind of skip back real quick to the reference you made about train derailment, right? Um, the you know tragedy that uh, is still unfolding, right, in East Palestine, in Ohio, on the border there with Pennsylvania. That became, I mean, the the right jumped at that because that fits precisely in their current conception of what environmental protection is. So you have there a you know, heartland, a small town, right, that uh, has been uh, uh, devastated by an environmental hazard, um, in part, you know, because of the, the malfeasance and greed of corporate control of the railroads. Um, and so you see there, you know, that happened in Ohio, and who's the new senator there um, is uh, Senator uh, Vance, right? Um, he was all over that. Uh, arguably, you know, a senator that is in the mold of this new kind of populist, uh, anti-establishment uh, Republican, uh, uh, you know, elected official. So that type of event, that environmental um, uh, tragedy, is perfectly in 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 view with with how the the right wants to address environmental issues. Um, or that's, you know, that's the threat. It's, it's this pollution. It's, it is, yes, it's coming over the border, uh, that, that, um, you know, immigrants are bringing with them and, uh, you know, more sophisticated within the, in, in the Tanton world, right. That their carbon footprints expand as they become naturalized citizens or whatever. Um, but it's this idea of that, that globalist corporate, uh, control and malfeasance and conspiratorial stuff that, that is what that East Palestine, uh, episode really kind of slotted into for them. And so taking a stand, you know, for, for, for Vance, right, was like, we're going to introduce legislation that got, uh, you know, it was bipartisan with, with Sherrod Brown there, um, you know, but, but kind of, kind of against uh, the, you know, establishment corporate side of the Republican Party who are probably get, you know, a lot of money from those, those um, uh, chemical companies and, and, and the railroads. Um, so, so anyways, I just, when you mentioned that, you know, I, I, it, it, it's, it's worth, worth talking about that. That's the kind of thing. It's like, 
who's, yeah, it's, it's carbon pollution, climate warming, whatever, that's hippie stuff. Um, but these, you know, wildfires, <laughs> that's happening because of either, you know, woke policy or mismanagement or, you know, the government, right? Like this is, this is all Forest Service, uh, 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 Department of Forestry's fault, right? Um, these are where they're trending and where they're attacking and where they're telling a story about where the real, you know, environmental concerns are. It's fascinating how malleable this ideology is. So we mentioned Ted Kaczynski and I want to come back to this. Sure. Uh, he died earlier this summer. And in that moment when his death was announced and it was covered, I felt like it, there was sort of a disproportionate amount of coverage of his death. And I wonder if this is in part related to the fact that he's come back into sort of popular um, understanding, especially on the far right. And so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit of wh what role did Kaczynski play for the far right? And your piece that you wrote for PRA really outlines this really well. Um, and you wrote that in 2020. So I'm wondering in the last three years, have you seen any waning of his influence um, or has he already at this point become immortalized in the screens and memes of far-right echo chambers? I think he's definitely been immortalized um, and will be, yeah, his ideas will live on as he, you know, designed them to um, with his prolific writings that are, for the most part, impenetrable. <laughs> um, some of it, though, you know, the more, more um, accessible stuff, uh, uh, yeah, will definitely, will definitely live on. Um, I mean... Kaczynski was, you know, a phenomenon of the 90s. Um, and, you know, w w when the, you know, the search was on, like, I mean, it was, you know, it was everywhere. I remember this growing up, right? Like it was, uh, it was national news for uh, many years. And so, you know, the whole story, his story, you know, genius IQ, right? Like going to Harvard at 15, all this stuff. Um, and then, you know, going off grid, and for 10 years living that way until, yeah, he decides to become a terrorist. Um, uh, yeah, it's a compelling, very American story. Um, and yeah, what's most, you know, interesting about the trajectory of his legacy was that, you know, almost immediately upon his capture and thereafter, right, it was, it was more of the anarchist left that, uh, you know, environmental uh, radicals that, that really adopted him. Um, even though, you know, his infamous manifesto, uh, you know, spent a lot of time attacking leftists. Um, but you know, there was, there was, there was enough there that, um, there was a great attraction to, to his ideas. Um, and I think there's still like, there's, there's just always going to be <laughs> as we, you know, society becomes more complex and there's new technology, uh, you know, constantly being introduced. Um, and especially for the younger generation right now, where this, where this, like his second wind of fame came from, you know, these, these are people who are, you know, on computers all the time and the, the careers available to them. Like if you want, uh, you know, a, um, a uh, well-paying job, like you've got to know how to use like Excel and email and all of that. Um, and so, as you know, and I'm sure you're not a big fan of like starting up every day and spending hours emailing people uh, or going into Zoom meetings, right? Like that there's going to be resonance there for as long as there are 
whatever the next you know Zoom meeting might be um, for people, and especially young people who want to, you know, like, oh, here's you know my future is 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 this. Like, I'd rather do anything else but that. And here is yeah, a, a theorist, uh, a writer um, of great fame who uh, perfectly you know diagnosed the problem. Um, so yeah, I mean the 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 use of his image and the memification of him has been really useful for the far right organizing around environmental ideas and and again really primarily against like what is happening now and 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 you know technological society the system um globalism really um that's been you know the most useful thing as well as the romantic ideal of being in a cabin in the woods and living on your own resources and reading by candlelight and, and being a you know self-important genius right out out in the woods somewhere. Um, so it's uh, you know I, I just loaded up you know Telegram looking at the accounts that I follow like it is it's still very prevalent um, his ideas and in fact when he died there was a lot of <laughs> repurposing of like kind of a, a hustle culture quote that he made about like don't give up you know and like you know losers history's losers suddenly become you know winners like there are many stories like that throughout history like that was the quote that got circulated a lot um, which, you know, is frightening when you think about it in the context of neo-Nazi telegram channels. But, um, yeah, nonetheless, he's, I, yeah, he's very much there to stay. His, his works are everywhere. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure if they're still available on Amazon, but they're very easily purchased if not, you know, just getting them online. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think a, a very important, figure that also we should note too like actually in the time since i wrote that article like it's also gone up into more mainstream like tucker carlson or whatever uh referencing him as like a very important thinker um and, and uncovering right that peter Thiel like also admired him despite obviously his role in uh you know silicon valley um so so yeah, I think, yeah, as long as we are um, doing things like we're doing right now over the internet, uh, he's going to be relevant. And the I, and, and a very important um, historian, uh, Peter Staudenmeier, who has written, you know, very best texts on ecofascism um, as it came out of, you know, the, the historical, uh, the German experience, um, has also written about um, Ted Kaczynski as, you know, the, the manifesto is a fundamentally right-wing document, mm -hmm. which hasn't, you know, needs to be, yeah, understood that way. Like, um, and, uh, uh, I, yeah, I encourage your readers to, to check out some of Stoudemire's work on that. But, yeah, I think, yeah, it's so memeable, right? Like, I mean, it was meme before memes, like, the Internet took off, right? Like, the, the, the FBI sketch of, you know, the man in the hood and the, the sunshades. Um, like, you know, it is, it's imprinted on the American consciousness in a way like Elvis Presley, frankly. Um, so, yeah, not going to go away anytime soon. Very useful uh, for far-right um, environmental, uh, uh, you know, ideas and recruitment. Um, so... Yeah, I think I think he's he's here to say. And it seems like he's also a, a great way to trace how far right ideology is moving to moving the right further. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of Ted Kaczynski named by Tucker Carlson. You know, we can by tracing his 
at legacy, we can see the ways in which these ideas are spreading um, across the political spectrum. So where does that leave us today? As the effects of climate destruction become more and more visible, more and more viscerally felt across the globe, what does this heightened awareness of climate destruction mean for eco-fascist organizing and its relationship on the to the center? How acute is the threat of this far-right movement today? And most importantly, what are some effective strategies to counter the appeal and growth of this violent ideology? As we as a society are rallied to action by terrifying realities of climate change, what opportunities can arise for left organizers from increasing moments of shared suffering and shared purpose? So I think, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody on the left is confused about the challenges uh, in front of us um, with the climate crisis accelerating um, and, uh, you know, the populist far right on the march. Um, and then, of course, punctuated by these mass killings um, targeting uh, people of color and, and religious minorities. Um, it's 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 a challenge. It's it's uh, it's quite devastating when you put it down all on paper. Um, and I think, yeah, certainly to reiterate again, and I don't think anybody's confused about this either, like the, the threat, uh, the, the most serious imminent threat is, is in these uh, lone actors who are part of a broader network and, you know, are talking to one another. So not lone wolf, say, but that the, the, the people who can buy a gun very easily turn around and, and shoot up a grocery store. Um, that's that's the most imminent threat um, that some of these ideas are, are propagating. And then the, the work that Trump did in his administration and like some of the figures, uh, you know, in his administration, right, like they mainlined a lot of the stuff out of the alt-right, um, the whole that Gen Z cohort of uh, far-right uh, uh, political activists. They've made a lot of inroads and a lot of organizing successes, like I mentioned with, with the Charlie Kirk example. I think, though, there is this counterweight happening uh, in the form of, you know, some policy that is getting through our very dysfunctional uh, federal government. Um, and then even on the state level in some states that are, you know, advancing a lot of climate policy that will make an impact on on, on the challenge of the climate crisis. Um, as we were talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, how it was really designed even to like benefit um, red, so-called red states, right, to uh, hopefully dull some of the opposition to the, the energy transition that needs to happen so that we can prevent, uh, you know, total uh, climate collapse. Um, and, and in that too, of course, there's like, we, you know, we need to make sure that the benefits of those policies get to the people who need them the most. Um, and that, you know, all the other benefits around like air quality that electrification uh, and other policies bring, like, that stuff needs to, you know, for organizers out in the country, like making, getting people and communities connected to these policies so that they benefit from them is going to be crucial. And then you can see there uh, the success of, yeah, what one party, you know, prioritizes and, uh, uh, you know, achieved um, at, at the federal level. Um, so, and, and again, like the vision, I think uh, the storytelling about, 
abundance and justice and inter intertwined there with environmental justice um, and and climate resiliency and a cleaner future, um, you know, around health, those issues, so important for organizers and, and, and organizations to be advancing um, and making sure everybody hears and everybody can get, um, you know, uh, take advantage of some of these these opportunities. Um, so that's got to be that's got to be a priority. And I know that, you know, for a lot of I mean, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, for instance, right, like was a compromise legislation. You had somebody from you know, Senator Joe Manchin, right, like was the deciding vote in there. So like how how climate friendly could it ultimately get? But lots of projections, lots of you know uh, research showing. I mean, how how the impact that these these policies could have if they're adopted, um, you know, effectively, and and so you know, so the, the, those policies that are secured, advancing their promise, and then pushing more policies to that effect. And and then what the, you know, also this is bringing hopefully manufacturing opportunities, good paying uh, jobs to communities around the country who are going to be part of this transition that has to happen. Um, that's, that's, you know, when, when people have and can count on uh, a good, pay, a good paying job, that's, you know, that should be the goal of any kind of um, uh, federal policy. Um, and so there's a lot of promise there. And, 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 and that's a, a decent counterweight, the, 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 you know, the largest climate bill uh, ever passed by Congress, right, is, is a good start to push back on some of these, these, these narratives. And, and, you know, let's be uh, clear that, you know, the opposition um, that organized to Trump in his first term, like is still out there, is still ready, is still active um, and, you know, knows the song and dance of all the, you know, kind of nativist appeals um, and policy. And yeah, hopefully it doesn't come to pass that that needs to be, uh, you know, that we're, that we're in the same place we were in 2016. Um, but it, it is good to know that there are um, very, um, you know, um, uh, just good people out there and, and, and good organizations um, who can who can uh, counteract some of this, um, uh, you know, far right um, uh, policy priorities and, and, and narratives. So anyways, I think, yeah, we are um, faced with just, you know, an enormous panoply of, of challenges. Um, but, you know, people want a livable future like they do. <laughs> people who want to kill people because they think that, you know, that, that immigrants or whatever are, are uh, you know, soiling the environment. That's a small number of people. And they, they kill people because they're totally out of power and, and they, you know, are, are trying to achieve terroristic aims. Vast majority of the country uh, wants nothing to do with any of that um, and wants to, yes, raise families and have good jobs and uh and and not see you know the whole country on fire or flooded um all the time so i think you know i have to remind ourselves that especially you know far-right researchers who are into our necks every day you know in in some of the worst stuff imaginable that that's you know for, for normies in this country um you know they want nothing to do with this this ideology so i, I take that in heart 
all the time, and especially when I'm, you know, out in the real world talking to people um, who are, yeah, either, um, you know, uh, putting up solar panels or starting gardens or, you know, whatever, being being communal um, and, and you know, uh, uh, living their lives uh, in the way that they want. So that, I take heart in that um, every day. Uh, and I think that that is, you know, left's job is to protect it is to advance these policies is to protect the most vulnerable um and uh and yeah we can we can we can win what a fabulous message to end what was quite a serious um and dark conversation i was you know gonna do a recap but i think you said it best and i really appreciate sort of that reminder especially for PRA and those who follow our, our media and who are listening to this podcast, um, I, you know, I think that that reminder to all of us is incredibly beneficial um, as we tackle the incredible amount of uh, political challenges that you laid out um, just now. So thank you so much, Alex. This was a fabulous conversation. Thank you, Koki. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Inform Your Resistance with Political Research Associates. Today's episode was hosted by me, Koki Mendes. Our producer and fact checker is Olivia Lawrence Wildman. Harini Rajagopalan created our communications and marketing materials and Frank Lawrence, our music. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe. And the best thing you can do to help us is tell your comrades about the pod. Resisting authoritarianism is just better with friends. Until next time.